Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal. They retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law. Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. The Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied. Is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? <laughs> Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said. So you are a king? Jesus responded. You say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews! They mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look! Here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him! Pilate said, I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the Stone Pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for Passover, and Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him! They yelled. Away with him! Crucify him! What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar! The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. One of the absolute privileges and honors that I uh, get to have as a pastor is that I often get to be in the middle of some of uh, the most sacred spaces and some of uh, people's most personal moments. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, being able to be a part of baby dedications, uh, to be a part of baptisms, to be a part of wedding ceremonies. I love 
these moments because they're so filled with life. Uh, they're filled with commitment. They're filled with making covenants. Um, and just to be in the middle of, of it all is such a joy. I think particularly about weddings. I, I think about uh, here it is in this moment of, of, a, of a couple coming together, of a man and a woman coming together. And, and they're so enthralled with one another there you could see that their eyes are just constantly engaged with one another their focus is fully on each other they're they're reciting words of, of their love and their adoration and their affection and their respect for one another and to get you just be in the middle of all of that is is such an honor such a joy to be a part of to be able to step into these moments where, you know, like in marriage, that what we're doing is that, that we're, we're getting to witness a couple coming in and stepping in to an entirely new reality. That is this place of understanding where they're saying, I'm not the same person anymore because the reality that I now live in, reside in, is that I'm given to another, that I've been joined with another person. And I think about baptism, I think about getting these moments of, of dunking people in the water, but we know it's not just the fact that we're uh, just dunking them in the water, but, but what we're doing in that moment is that as, as a people of God, we're, we're watching as someone saying that their faith is, is participatory, that their faith is, is a place where they're, they're taking a posture of, of full embrace, of a life that is fully submerged and enveloped in who God is. It, it's this place in which someone is coming and saying, ah, my life now resides in a new reality. Right? Because in baptism, what we're saying is, God, all that I am is joined to you. I join you, I am with you, I abide with you. The reality of my life is joined with you in your death and in your resurrection. This is the new place that I live in. Say all of this to, to say, listen, when you look over the pages of scripture, that what you will see declared from God is the language of covenant. This absolutely sacred space that God invites people into. And these are the words that are often repeated by God. I will be your God and you will be my people. God desires to, to, to arrive amongst humanity, for, for humanity to grow aware that God is here amongst us, longing to dwell here with us. And, and he speaks these words that, that just say, look, all of me, all that I am, you get all of me. I am with you. I am for you. I am committed to you. All of my resources, all of my strength, all of my authority, all of my affection is yours. Listen to these words that are all over scripture. Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
Exodus 29, verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Leviticus chapter 26, 45, I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of their nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 14, in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray away from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions, thus they will be my people and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, for what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 28. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Ezekiel chapter 11. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah chapter 7. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. All the way to the very end of Scripture, in Revelation chapter 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Scripture describes that the movement of God is to be closer and closer to humanity to reside here amongst us. And that we would step into this new reality that our life would be understood as this place where we, where we realize that, that God is ours and we are God's. We belong to Him. He dwells amongst us. He wants to be near to us. He wants to reside with humanity and abide here with us. Why read all of those passages? Because I want to say, listen, I want you to get it. I want you to understand this. I want you to see the emphasis in God's words. He is saying, I am yours and you are mine. So when we look at the trial of Jesus, Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowd and he yells to them, behold the man. And they saw him, and they yelled out, Crucify him. Crucify him. These words, behold the man, are, are so important for us to hear. Because what Pilate is doing in this moment is it's, it's, he's using, he's being ironic and he's, he's mocking Jesus, right? He's, he's, he's showing Jesus, and from Pilate's understanding, he's showing Jesus to be pathetic. That he's beaten, he's stripped, he's, he's worn down, he's nothing incredible to look at from Pilate's perspective. And he, and he brings him out to, to the crowd and, and by saying, behold the man, what he's, what he's doing in this moment is to say, is this really the guy? Is this really the guy that you guys are being so worked up over? Is this really the man that's causing such, such turmoil in the streets and in the city? 
And look, yeah, there's a problem. There, there's very likelihood and strong possibility of what Pilate's doing in this moment is that he's trying to make Jesus look little because he doesn't want to see Jesus being crucified. He doesn't want to see him being, being executed because he doesn't see Jesus as that big of a threat. He doesn't see him as that big of a deal. And so by saying, look, behold the man, he's, he's coming and he's telling them this, you really want to go through with this. And, and the, crowd, the crowd sees him, and they just shout, crucify him, crucify him. And this phrase, behold the man, becomes so powerful. Because, because what, what you would hope would have happened in this moment is that the crowd would have looked upon Jesus. And that it would have been a moment of, of, of embrace. It would be a moment where, where they recalled scripture, all of those, those verses that I read to us, when they would realize, behold, he's here. He's here amongst us. Behold, this is the one we have been waiting for. Behold, this is the one that has been long promised to us that God in all of his glory and all of his might, he is here amongst us. But they didn't. They didn't. They didn't recognize him for, for who he was and who he is. And in this space of where Pilate is coming and saying, Behold the man. What John is doing, he's highlighting for us what he, what he started in, in chapter 1 with. From the very opening of, of, of John's gospel account, he tells us this in verse 10 in chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus, came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. In verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John starts off the book by saying, Here he is. God is making his home among us. He's here and he's dwelling amongst us. Behold the man. And here we are in chapter 9. And the words are essentially the same. The, 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 the presentation of Jesus is here amongst humanity. God is appearing before his very own people. And like verse 11 says of chapter 1, he came to his own people. And even they rejected him. His people, the one that he has been saying over and over and over and over and over again to you, I will be your God. You will be my people. It's here in this moment where, where he, he's presented amongst them. And yes, he's being mocked with, with, with crown and robe, standing amongst his people. 
What's Jesus doing in this moment? He's fulfilling the words of his covenant promise to us. I'm here. I'm here amongst you. I'm here for you. I'm fulfilling my side of the covenant. I'm coming before you. It's, it's this place of Jesus is being presented in front of humanity. I'm yours. I am for you. I am doing this for you. Like I told you, as I've promised, I've meant it from the very beginning. And I mean it now in this very moment. I am yours. But listen, this isn't, this isn't a story that demonstrates God's powerlessness. This isn't a story, though it is tragic, it is simultaneously beautiful and powerful. The tragedy of it all is even though all throughout the pages of Scripture, God has been coming amongst humanity saying, I will be your God, and I will be your God, and I will be your God. And the response of humanity has been rejection and rejection and rejection, not being able to recognize him, not being able to embrace him. Jesus knows full well that he's going to be rejected. What the crowd's words are going to be as he stands amongst them and the words are said, behold the man, that the response of the crowd is going to be crucify him, crucify him. Because Jesus has seen this same response over the course of human history. It's something that he's talked with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Hosea about. He knows the condition of humanity's heart. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. And it is in this place with an absolute stroke of genius because he knows the human heart. He knows the disease of our constant rejection of him, and he uses that very disease as an avenue for our healing. With unmatched, Jesus, with unmatched genius, our rejection will be used by God as the catalyst for our redemption. We reject and God uses it, our, our very rejection of him. To, to, to be the thing that puts us on a trajectory of being able to embrace him. He, he uses the cross to, to condemn and overcome the sin that, that just has filled our hearts and all of humanity. He will make a way for us to dwell with him. So what do I suggest is our response as we look at John chapter 19 here and in the trial of Jesus? My suggestion for us is just three words. Behold the man. 
Look upon Jesus. See him enthroned. Catch a glimpse of him full of his glory and grace. See him with crown and throat. Throw, see him with crown and robe. Seek after him. Come boldly before him. Pursue him. John writes his gospel account to encourage us to become aware of God's dwelling amongst us and to encourage us to not reject him, but to believe in him. And for that to be a daily act on our behalf, to behold him, to see him, to come into greater and greater understanding just of who he is, to, to, to get, catch a glimpse of his glory and his grace and, and his presence here amongst us. And that our response wouldn't be rejection, but our response would be embrace because we see his constant pursuit of us and his desire to dwell with us. I think our response is, is just simply this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Behold the man.